Mark. For those who are not with us on Wednesday nights, uh, I've been having Pastor Art do a uh, paragraph-by-paragraph study through the Gospel of Mark, and we will tag-team at different times. And since he's away, I'm tag-teaming this point. And I want to remind you where we're at in this Gospel of Mark. The Gospel was written, this one, was written to what group of people? Do you remember? Matthew was to the Jews. Luke is to the Greeks. Mark is writing primarily to what group of the early, early history? The Roman countries. So the Romans, if you remember, the Romans were very, very, very um, respectful of. They were very uh, drawn towards power and towards might and for people who were that type A personality that would get things done. And that's the Roman mentality. Well, Mark writes, and he's one of the shorter Gospels, 16 chapters. One of his repeated words, you'll see it immediately, straightway, forthwith. He's a Gospel that writes a lot of action, not a lot of teaching. He doesn't have the sermon on the mount, whereas Luke and Matthew, they record that. John has a lot of instruction, and where Jesus was teaching, Mark just is an action type of a gospel. And when he's giving this gospel, he's going to present Jesus Christ right at the very beginning, who he is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he's going to present him in a very uh, positive light that would draw attention, the Romans' attention. So we start off, and we look just broadly through the chapter. We're going to look at the very last few verses, but just as a broad aspect, it starts off tells us a little bit about what happened and we jump down and all of a sudden after he calls his first few disciples in verses 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 starting with verse 21 if you have paragraph headings it makes it a little bit easier it talks about and we mentioned this in previous study that it talks about how they went into Capernaum one of those major cities uh, uh, on the trade route heading all the way up into Mesopotamian area from Egypt this was a Jewish town in Cap- called Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day he enters the synagogue he taught they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority that would ring true with the Romans that Jesus is coming across as an individual with real ability and skill and remember that in that society, every young man who wanted to make himself a name in Roman community, one of the courses, one of the classes that they would take would be classes on public speaking. It was very, very important in the Greek and the Roman culture that you would know how to speak publicly and not be afraid to stand up if you wanted to be a leader and you would be persuasive in your discussions, where a lot of us would be intimidated by that. That was viewed in a Roman point of view that this was something that was a, a very very necessary quality in anybody who would be a leader to persuade the public audience. Well, Mark points out that Jesus was very persuasive. He was one with authority. He was speaking not as one who was having to quote other people, but he could speak from his own aspect of saying he understood the word and he spoke. And then the passage goes on after he tells us about how he speaks. It shows how all of a sudden in that same synagogue, verse 23, a man with an unclean spirit cries out, he's demon-possessed. And he says, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. That is, you, I know you're the Messiah. And Jesus rebukes that demon, tells him to hold his peace, come out. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he comes out of him. And everybody's amazed. So what you have in this passage is you have Jesus showing his divine abilities and his divine power both in his ability to speak, his ability to have that authority, his ability over the demon, the demon to be able to control him, to tell him where he can go, what he has to do, and even be quiet. And then you keep on going, and it says in verse 28, his fame spreads abroad. Verse 29, they go into a private home, Peter, the apostle Peter's home, and his mother-in-law is sick with a high fever. 
Luke describes it as a, as a very high fever. And he comes in and Jesus speaks or touches her. And as a result, when he lifted her up by the hand, verse 31, she immediately is healed. The fever leaves. And she's ministered, uh, goes about ministering to them. And then the story continues that at that same night, this, the house is bombarded with people from the city bringing their sick relatives, all that were diseased, those that were possessed with devils. In verse 33, the entire city is gathered together at the household where Peter and his mother-in-law live with the rest of the family. And Jesus healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, cast out the demons, and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew of him. And so here you have Jesus showing this great power, this great ability. Then what you have is a dis demonstration of Jesus and how he was so diligent in his devotion. The next verse talks about Jesus in the early morning hours, even though it went late at night. Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place to pray. How he was so devoted that in the busyness, when people are seeking for him, where there's so much to do, that he knew he needed time with his father in prayer. Then you have, as the story just unfolds a little bit, that you have Jesus showing a consistency with his priorities. He's consistent with his priorities. They come to him, the, uh, the apostle... Paul, who is called in this, uh, Peter, excuse me, who is called Simon in verse 36, his other name, that they were, and the others that followed after him, when they found Jesus, they said, all the men seek for thee. And so Jesus is being bombarded. There's so much to do. There's still so many people to minister to. But watch his priorities in this text. And this is critical to the rest of the chapter. Jesus said, let us go into the next town. Wait a minute, there's still more people in Capernaum that need ministering. And he points out, let us go into the next town that I may do what? That I may heal other people? Is that what he says? Yes, no? No, what's he want to do? That I may preach. What's the message he's going to preach? The gospel. Okay, the good news. He says that I may preach there the message for that's the reason why I came forth. And so Jesus has these priorities that are really, really, he's consistent. His ministry was to come and to seek and to save that which was lost, okay? It wasn't come and take away all of our ills, all of our difficulties, though we want him to. And though we would like him to take away any of our financial problems, any of our physical problems, any of our social problems, his ministry was to deal with our spiritual needs, and he says, this is my priority. I'm coming and I need to preach. And even though there are still people here who have illnesses, even though there's still needs here to, you know, I could, I could set up my own healing clinic and take care of all these people that are traveling through Capernaum. It's no, I must needs go and preach the gospel, the good news. And he's maintaining that priority. You know what else is with that if you follow along? And it says in verse 39, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. Not only does he maintain that priority, but he was urgent with this mission. He had an urgency with this mission. What he does is it's like, this has to be done. I can't wait for another day. I got to get this ministry of, of sharing the gospel. I got to get this moving. Even though I can heal people, I've got to convince others of their spiritual needs. I've got to help others to see that without, without me, they're damned, but with me, they have the hope of eternal life that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come unto the Father but by me. And so he's very clearly 
saying, this is the message, and this is my mission. I'm going to focus on that. Then the next few verses tell about one of the accounts when he's traveling through Galilee, as he's going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue. And I remind you that when he would travel from town to town, he would hit the synagogues, and he would try to get into the synagogues where the teaching and the preaching was going, because if he can persuade the leadership, he'll have a more long-standing and effective ministry. And so he is... He's working towards this goal, going through, and we read of a story that Mark was led by the Spirit to put into his gospel. Luke also has it, and Matthew also have it. They don't have it in the same chronological order, but they all tell the story. And they talk about how a man comes to Jesus, and this man is full of leprosy. And this man is seeking some help. Now, it's a wonderful story. There is a lot of little detail in here that we're going to just point out in the next few minutes. But what strikes me is this story has some good illustration. It has some bad illustration. And one of the things that it wraps up that whole story about this man who meets Jesus is how this man makes a major, major, major mistake. It's not that he does anything that is... um, corrupt or immoral in the regards that he does something to hurt Jesus. He thinks he's doing something good, but actually he's doing something that isn't so good. And as a result, it does hinder the ministry of Christ, as we'll see in a few moments, but he makes a major mistake. Now, we all know that we make major mistakes. We all know, and we can go to history, where people had opportunity and they they kind of blew it. Uh, I can jump back in the history, take you to San Francisco Chronicle uh, years ago in 1884 when they were given an editorial, a story that was, was presented to them. And the editor in charge of the paper read this and said, this is such a silly story. This is just this novel, you know, first chapter of novel in nobody. And he wrote and said that none of our San Francisco readers with any intelligence would be interested in this story. Well, a couple of years later, Rudyard Kipling won a Nobel Prize for that very same story. So that editor made a kind of a terrible assessment of the situation. Remember, after World War II, Germany had to make reparations to America. One of the things that, uh, that Germany offered America was they would give them the rights to one of the cars that were being produced in Germany. But the American automakers said, no, this car will never sell. Do you remember what car it was? The Volkswagen, right. You know, the American auto company made a terrible mistake and the government gave up all that opportunity. George Lucas, you ever hear of George Lucas? Film producer, yes? When he was first trying to get this, this fictional sci-fi story you know, into a movie theme, I don't know if you've ever heard of his original work. Yes, no? Star Wars, you've heard of it, yeah. He pitched it to several different companies, and nobody, nobody wanted to respond to it. And so it was only the Fox uh, um, Media Network that said, well, we will, we will bite on it. We'll invest $10 million. And then between that money and some of his own money, he did the very first film of Star Wars, hoping to say, maybe we can make this into something that might sell and get us our money back. Well, you know, $750 million later in the first year, they got their money back. Right? And that whole, that whole genre of Star Wars, I would think it's pretty successful from a business point of view. Well, the original peoples that, that rejected it, they made a terrible mistake when they look at it. And they say, we, you know, we should have known better. And we, hindsight is, man, hindsight is always, what's the vision? 2020, perfect vision in hindsight. Well, the story that we talk about <clears throat> is a man who, who is confronting, con- confronted with choices here. And he makes some good choices, some bad choices. 
And yet, at the same time, let's wrap it together and let's put it this way. This man provides us a very simple, very simple illustration of what it takes to become a really, really good, or should we say the best servant possible of Jesus Christ. From his story, let me just point out two things that he did. Okay, that one is a positive, one's a negative. That will help you and I, if we learn from this story, that we will become a better servant of Jesus Christ. It all starts with this. It always starts that if you're going to become a servant of Jesus Christ, you have to start with coming to Christ by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. The man's coming, and the story is unfolding, and we're getting a little bit of an idea. It says, there came a leper to him, verse 40, beseeching him, kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, if you will, you can make me clean. And just picture the scene. Jesus, according to Mark, Matthew chapter 8, there's a huge crowd present, and they're following. And this man, who if he is the typical leper, he isn't in this crowd. The typical leper of that day would have to stay away from the crowd. Let me just read, not to bore you, but to just make sure that we're all on the same page about leprosy in the New Testament. That there's a, there's a couple quotes I want to give you here. It says, Leprosy was a terrible and loathsome disease, believed by the Jews to be, quote, a stroke of God's punishment because of some special sin in your life. Unquote. It began with little specks on the eyelids and then on the palms of your hand, gradually spread first over the surface of the body and afterwards ate its way through all the tissues, rotting away the whole body piecemeal. Death came as a welcome deliverance from the disease, finally when it attacked your vital organs. It was considered by the Jews to be highly infectious and hereditary to the fourth generation. Both of those are wrong, but that's what they thought. According to the Talmud, quote, the blind, the leper, the poor, and the childless, childless were accounted as dead. And so you have leprosy, even in Jewish thinking, this is as if you are, you are dead. Let me go a little bit further. In the list of defilements, leprosy stood second in order, next to being defiled by a leper. It was the, was the only one thing worse than that. It was being defiled by touching a dead body. The very entrance of a leper defiled a habitation. Ra- rabbinism, uh, rabbis' teachings, Trace that disease variously to 11 different sins that would bring on leprosy. Segregation, social ostracism was applied heartlessly in the treatment of a leper. He was not suffered to enter into a walled town. The leper was obliged to go bareheaded, to cover up his face up to his mouth, hiding his beard as a mourner in lamentation for the dead. If he entered a walled town, it was in the peril of being, uh, receiving 40 stripes. Uh, from the whip. The rabbis were, per- were peculiarly cruel in their treatment of the leper. According to their regulations, no one might salute a leper or come within six feet of him. If the wind were from the direction where the leper is, you had to have a hundred feet between you and that person. Even to eat eggs from a street where a leper had just passed down was considered by one rabbi to be dangerous. Others were known to hide out or else pelt the lepers with stones, etc., etc. In the Middle Ages, that um, in some of these churches that you would see in these ancient churches, they would have in the walls these little squints, these little slits in the wall. They were there for a purpose, especially in communities where lepers were nearby. What they would happen in the Middle Ages in many churches is they would have a funeral service for the leper. He would even come in in funeral clothing. They would do a burial for him, a, a, a funeral service for him. And then if he ever wanted to come and see what was going on in the church again, the only thing he could do was look through those slits in the wall from the outside. 
And so leprosy for years and years and years was one of those plagues that people would stay away from. And so Jesus is in that culture where they think it's contagious. They think you've got to stay at least six feet away. If they're downwind, 100 feet away. And if you touch them, you are all of a sudden unclean. And this man, and Luke says it very clearly, he was full of leprosy. Luke wants us to get the point that this man is in the, in, in the serious stages, the final stages of his leprosy. This isn't like in the very beginning, we think we catch it early. And so he wants us to understand that this man is very polluted. He is, he is you know, affected in a great way. And the man comes and he bows down before Jesus. Now you have to understand this leprosy. This was a serious, serious disease. Do you remember what, Miriam, um, what uh, Moses said about Miriam when she was struck with leprosy? In Numbers chapter 12, the, the people come up and they say, what do we do with her? And he says, let her be as a, do you remember what he says? As a dead person for these next seven days. In the mind of the Jews, even way back in Moses' day, if you were a leper, you were as good as dead. Do you remember how the king responds when he gets the letter from um, Naaman's, Naaman's king from uh, outside of Israel? They send a letter and they say, my favorite general, Naaman, is sick with leprosy. I'm sending a letter to you, king of Israel, because I want you to help find some way to cure him. Do you remember what the king's first response is? Who am I? Am I God that I, in Second Kings 5, am I God that I can bring about a healing of leprosy? They believed that leprosy was a death sentence. They believed leprosy was totally incurable. In fact, according to Leviticus 13, if you had leprosy, you put on what was called mourning clothes. Clothes that people would, would get buried in, people would grieve in, because it was considered that this is, this is a deadly, deadly, deadly disease. Now think this through. The rabbis did this. The culture of Jesus did this. They would often use leprosy as a picture of something that is incurable, something that is devastating, something that separates you from everybody else. Sin. And leprosy was often pictured in one of those and associated with this is something very, very sinful. And so the picture of leprosy at times is this is the this is how sin affects us it can devastate our lives it puts us in a spot where there's nothing we can do to cure ourselves of sin by the way that's true is it not we can't do anything to get rid of our sin it is something that only who can take away god almighty and so it's a deadly sin and it's going to separate us from from the lord for all eternity if it's not purged if it's not taken care of it can cause all kinds of difficulties in families in relationships any sin and we all know we've we've seen sin and how it can work and it can destroy and so this picture of this man coming to jesus is such an apt picture especially after jesus had just said i need to go and preach the gospel to all the different areas. The first man that we hear a story in the Gospel of Mark is a man who portrays the devastation of sin. And Jesus speaks to this man and gives this man hope. Now, I want you to catch in this text, this man exercises great faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the words that he says. When the man comes to Jesus Christ, he is coming and remember, there's a great crowd, Matthew chapter 8. When he comes to Jesus, what is he risking by coming to Jesus? What could this man be risking? Getting beaten, okay? Getting 40 stripes, getting stoned, getting pelted. But if you were the leper, what would go through your mind? What's my other options? My other option is I do nothing and I 
die of leprosy. If I try to approach Jesus, who I hear is a miracle worker, maybe he can heal me of it. I might get beaten up, but maybe. And so you'd run the risk, right? And he comes to Jesus Christ. What are his first words that he speaks? What do they say to you about this man? If you will, you can make me clean. What does he believe about Jesus? Okay? He believes Jesus is capable of healing the most incurable disease. The most devastating disease of that day. I believe if you wanted to, you could do this. And by the way, we've already said, what did the Jews believe? Who was the only one who could heal this disease? Am I God? Am I God, the king said. This man is approaching Jesus with simple faith. I believe you are God. I believe what you want to do, you can do. I believe in your power. I believe in what you want. As he says this, so let's throw something else in there. Not only does he believe what Christ can do, it, it just says to me, it, it speaks volumes. If you will, you can make me clean. It speaks volumes that he is saying very clearly, I don't deserve this. This isn't something that, that I merit. It is totally based upon... Well, how did we put that in the New Testament? We love him because he first loved us. This is based on the grace of God, if you will. If you choose to, you can forgive me. He's not coming and saying, God, you owe me. Jesus, you owe me forgiveness. Jesus, you have to do this because I'm such a good person deep down and within. He's very clearly coming with a, with a humble attitude that he is saying, I don't deserve this. This is a work of grace on your part, but I believe you can do this. Jesus, the story just gives us some details about him. Jesus, it says, moved with compassion. Now, look at the, dissect the verse 41. With what you know about leprosy, with what we just rehearsed for these last few minutes, Jesus moved with compassion. What are the unusual things that Jesus does? He touches them. He touches them. This man, remember, remember in Jewish culture, in rabbinic writing that they would consider equal to Scripture, if Jesus touches this unclean thing, Alan, I'm so glad you sat here. Okay, if Jesus touches this unclean thing, what happens to Jesus? He's unclean. Okay, this man's defilement would defile Jesus. Jesus has no hesitation. He touches him. He just doesn't speak to him, but he violates all the cultural mores, and he reaches out and touches. Can you imagine from that? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be dyna- uh, dramatic, but at the same time be dramatic. This man has not had a touch in how long? Right? Everybody that he knew, they wouldn't touch him. Can you imagine how that felt? Do you, you know how you remember there's at certain times in your life that somebody just comes up and they give you a pat on the back? And you remember that pat. It's significant. This touch by Christ is significant in the sense that somebody didn't think he was awful, awful, awful. Jesus touches him. Then what else does Jesus do? I mean, just by the fact that he's able to touch him puts Jesus within six feet, Right? Which can you imagine? Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking at that moment? Can you imagine what the crowd did? Do you think anybody in the crowd went? Ah! There would be that. There would be that normal reaction, like, "What are you doing?" Jesus touches him, and then he puts forth his hand, touches him, and says to him, "I will." And then he makes a statement that is profound in that culture. What is it? 
Be thou clean. Do you realize that in that culture there's only one person that could declare a leper clean? In Jewish, in Jewish culture at that time, who was it? The high, the high priest would have to declare it in the Sanhedrin. What has Jesus just exalted himself to? What position? The high priest of, Jesus, uh, of God Almighty. The Messiah. Showing his power, his authority. Now we understand that. And we, because we have that hindsight, we can look and see this is what Jesus was doing, his declaration, profound declaration. But isn't it a profound declaration that Jesus can declare to us, I forgive you of your sins? He can say to that woman who was taken in adultery, and he says, I forgive you, go and sin no more. That he can say to the woman who was, who was with the 12 years of disease, he says, be clean, your faith has made you whole. And so Jesus expresses to this man a cleansing, a healing. He's not afflicted. He's not polluted by that man's sinfulness, that man's defilement, but rather Jesus' grace, Jesus' purity, Jesus' perfection comes to this man and he's cleansed of his, of his leprosy. Doesn't that remind you of what he does for us spiritually? We don't pollute him when we come and confess and say, if you will, please forgive me of my sins, all of them. And Jesus doesn't become polluted by our sin, but rather he makes us to share in his grace, his righteousness. Thank God that we have a Christ that's willing to do that. When we call, it says that he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so here you have a picture of compassion. Now, as you can, going through the story, it's very, very clear. Okay, this man is coming to Christ, and the response of this, which most every one of you at some time, you can point and say, I did this. I came to Christ in faith. Let's remind ourselves that this passage very clearly says to all of us, okay, this cleansing by Christ, that it is for anyone at all levels, even somebody full of leprosy. It is for the... I'm just going to make three statements here, okay? It is for all people. It is for the asking. The man didn't have to do anything else but ask in faith. And it is absolute. When Christ cleanses, it is absolute. On the spiritual realm, that's pictured in this situation. Now, what happens beyond that is a little bit more. Okay, this man, is, he has come to Christ in faith. That's the positive. That's the encouragement. You want to be a servant of Jesus Christ? It comes by you making that initial step, coming to Christ and say, I need you to cleanse me of all my sin and all of its consequences. We call that being born again. We call that being saved. We call that being converted. We call that repentance. All those biblical terms wrapped together, it's the idea that Jesus does the work when we come by simple faith in him. Then the story gives us some more details about this man, what he does afterwards, which I think is a negative example, that, but the positive would be this. If we want to be the best servant possible, we said, number one, come to him by simple faith. Number two, one needs to completely obey the words of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens in this text is interesting. Jesus is, gives this man a command after he's cleansed. And as soon as he's spoken, we read in verse 42, immediately the leprosy is departed from him. He is cleansed. Everything is action, action, the power of Christ. But verse 43, Jesus very, very strongly, straightly charged him, is what the King James. It is, he, I'm telling you to do this, very emphatic. 
very strongly. He is giving him orders, and he tells him that he says, okay, he straightly charged him, sent him away, and he said to him, the orders in verse 44, see thou say nothing to any man, but go show yourself to the priest, offer your cleansing, those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And so Jesus gives him an unusual command, unusual in our day and age. Unusual in the sense that we are told to go and tell everybody what Jesus has done. This man is told, don't tell anybody for right now. Okay? And you, and you have to put it in its setting. And what he's telling him to do. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here, okay? I, I don't think, I don't think, and we're, we're mistaken to say that Jesus is saying to this man, don't let anybody know what I just did. Don't tell a soul. There is a great multitude there. People are knowledgeable of this. So it's not the idea that this, others might not know. It's something to be done something differently. And it's, it's basically, I think what it is, is Matthew 5.17. I did not come to destroy the law, Jesus said, but I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. According to Leviticus 13... Okay, which they're still living under that law. If somebody had leprosy and they suspect that there had been a cleansing, they are required by the law to go immediately to the priest. Go to the temple at that time. Later on, we be the tabernacle. Go to the high center place of worship. Then what you would do is undergo a thorough examination by the priest in charge. It would take several days, a minimum of a week, according to Leviticus 13. Then, if they, after they did the investigation and they found both physically and by checking out your history, checking out your other, other witnesses of this being true, checking out the physical response after a few days, is there any more of the scabbing, the scarring, is there any issue? Then what they would do is they would have to offer sacrifice. The sacrifice was typically, one of the sacrifices was two birds. One bird would be killed, the blood would be there, the other live bird would be dipped in the blood, and then it would be let loose, picturing that all of a sudden it was taken away. This disease of the blood was taken away. And then the high priest, the priest in charge, or by the New Testament era, the Sanhedrin, because it was so rare, it would take that whole council of their, of their, their judicial body. They would make a declaration that yes, this has been an actual, real, documented healing. Now Jesus tells us in this text why he's telling the man to be quiet. And there's one reason he told him to be quiet. You go to Jerusalem, you go through this process for one reason. What was it? It's at the end of the verse. You need to be a testimony to to them. Who's the them? The Sanhedrin. The Jewish leadership. The people who are later on going to say that Jesus heals by the power of Beelzebub. Okay? And they can discount his, his miracles. And they can try to discredit him. If this man goes to Jerusalem and a thorough investigation is done, they would put in their records genuine healing. It would be documented. How do they later on, the next year later, when they get mad at Jesus, how do they deny what their documents say? So Jesus was setting up the situation that they would have authenticated verification coming from Jewish leadership that would basically put a stamp of approval upon his ministry. And if his ministry is approved, then surely, then what does that mean to his message? 
it's approved as well. And so Jesus had this purpose. The purpose was to be able to, to be a testimony to the Jewish leadership because they're going to make the decision. It's the Jewish leadership that later on gets the crowd to say, we have no king but Caesar. We want who released? We want Barabbas. They get the peoples in Jerusalem to yell out those words. The people who are visiting from Galilee, they're they're on board with Jesus. They're the ones who have cried out, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so in that, this was very important. Get this witness down to Jerusalem. Get this witness to the leadership. And let them see what's going on. But the man is clearly told what to do. What's the man do? Oh, he obeys to the letter what Jesus said to him. He is so appreciative of what Jesus did. He's going to do whatever Jesus tells him to do. Is that what happens? You know the account. Does the man keep his mouth shut? No. What does the man do? He tells everybody. He tells everybody what has happened, and there's no indication that he goes to Jerusalem and goes through the process according to the law, which, by the way, can come back later on and haunt Jesus because you know, the la- later on, the accusation can be, you, are telling, you didn't tell these people to follow the law. Okay? Could have been an accusation. Well, the point is, the man, the man does just the opposite of what Jesus says. Does it adversely affect the Lord's ministry? We'll read the rest of the story. It says, And the man went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but had to stay without. If Jesus was going to have more of an impact in preaching his message, wouldn't you want it to be done in the cities where there is the synagogues are located in the cities? That's where the leadership is, where we can be more persuasive to get the leadership on board, who then they can study the Word of God and point out and verify what he's doing. And so the size of the crowd, and by the way, let's be honest about what's the crowd looking for? What's the innuendo here in this entire text? What are they excited about? The same thing that Jesus said, I need to leave this area and go through all Galilee. I need to be preaching, not just doing miracles. What's the crowd after? The miracles, not the message. And so what the man does, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? I mean, this, this is ironic for, for you and me to look at the passage and say, you know, hey guy, you know, you were told to keep your mouth shut and you, you told everybody. The irony, we're told to tell everybody and we keep our mouths shut. Okay, And so there's a, there are some opposites, but at the same time, there's real parallels here. The man does something good. He tells others of what Jesus is doing. And we could all sit here and say, well, that's good. I, you know, tell a little bit about what Jesus is doing. But he didn't do what's best. The best is to obey what Jesus said exactly. Now, let me, let me just add a few thoughts with that in your notes. You can just phrase it however you want. You know, we need, in the lessons, we need to do exactly what Jesus commands us to do, even if it is hard to do. Now, let's give the man a break to some degree. Why would it be hard to keep his mouth shut? Seriously, think this through. What's that? He's just been healed of a deadly disease. He had a death sentence. Nobody would talk to him. All of a sudden, he's a celebrity. He's healed. What would you do? What would be your initial feeling if all of a sudden you were told 
you had you had terminal cancer you were told that you know it's you know nobody's can even come and visit you and then two days later somebody comes and says your cancer is gone it's totally healed how would you feel should i ask you how would you feel overwhelmed, overwhelmed with joy right would you say oh well i don't want anybody to know about it no what would we all do uh, yeah. Hey, let's take let's take that the most exciting event in your family. Yeah, a baby's born. Oh, I don't want to tell anybody. Well, they'll know by the lack of sleep in a couple days. But other than that, do we tell people about these magnificent events? We share them. So this would be hard. This would be you know, now maybe not for you, but for people like me who can't keep their mouth shut anyway. This would be very very hard to do, and it would be something that I'm inclined not to fully understand. It'd be difficult to understand. Why should I be totally quiet about this? Oh, yeah, the law says it. But remember, you're living in Galilee. The Galileans didn't typically do everything according to the law because they couldn't get down there regularly. They didn't worship as frequently as, and it was excused because they were living far away. And by the way, if he's going to, you think this through for a second. What kind of job was he holding as a leper? He didn't. How, would, how did lepers survive then? Well, if they had rich families that would give them things, but they couldn't live with them, but they'd get help. Otherwise, how are they going to survive? They're going to be begging. Is it going to cost this man money to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem? Be, be, you know, this is going to be a three-day journey. Is this going to cost some money? Is this going to take some effort? So you put on top of this, he's got this inner itch that he's just got to let everybody know about. You know, we didn't always follow the law. We kind of fudged on the law up in Galilee anyway. And now you're expecting me to make this trip all the way down here that's going to cost me time and effort that I don't have. And I'm probably going to have to beg my way all the way down and beg my way back again. And then I'm going to have to be in Jerusalem for a week at least because they're going to have to examine me and they're going to have to send people back. And who's going to feed me in Jerusalem during that time period? And this could be a very difficult situation for me. And it could be, you know, it could be Jesus tells you to forgive other people. Do the emotions want to forgive somebody who has blasted you? No. All of a sudden, you, you're supposed to forgive somebody, a family member, a mate, a spouse, who's done you dirty. You're told to forgive them, and your emotions are, I don't want to forgive. We are told to do some things in scriptures. We're told to get baptized. Get put all the way under the water and come up again. Well, it would be so much more convenient if we just would sprinkle. But no, the exact words in scripture are, you have to be put under the water to show the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to be a baptism. Why do we do it that way? Because it's convenient? It's not. It, it would be so simple to do it another way. And by the way, do a lot of people, when they get baptized and stand before a crowd, do they have fear? I'll, I'll give you one. We are told to pay taxes. How do you feel about that? Can't wait until April 15th. It's my favorite day of the year. Right. Wrong. We are told to discipline our kids. There is no joy in trying to be consistent. Is it hard to be consistent in training children? Is it hard to keep your emotions under control? 
We are told in Scripture that there are times where what we're supposed to do. I'll, I'll give you one that makes no sense to a lot of people. We're supposed to give of the first fruits. You can call it tithes. You can call it sacrificial giving. Whatever term you want to get, do. Does it make sense to you that I give the Lord 10% and he's going to then make sure I have enough? By, by American mathematics. And by the way, I think modern math is so confusing anyway. The way it's being done. But this mathematics that if I give away more of my money to the Lord's work, he's going to take care of me. That makes no sense. Economically. But by faith, we see it work out. By faith, we understand that we bless them that curse us. We don't feel like it. It doesn't make sense. They might take advantage of me. But this is what God tells us to do. And when we do it, it works out for best. When we all of a sudden have those situations where, you know, it would be more fun. It would be more appealing to maintain my rights. Maintain what I want to do. I'm an American. I want to do it. I want to, you know, I want to go into this place and I want to eat whatever food I want to eat. But then we're warned in Scripture, if somebody sees you eating that certain food, if we lived back in those days, somebody saw us eating certain foods, they might be stumbled. And he tells us, give up your rights. I don't feel like that. That doesn't make sense to me because then somebody might manipulate me. If we do exactly what God says, forgive, pray, read, work at our marriages. When you don't feel like working at your marriage, when you don't feel like listening to your parents, when you don't feel like caring for your elderly parents because they've become childish and they've reverted back. Those challenges, and when we put it in and we say, okay, we're to be honest at work, and if I'm honest at work, I may not get ahead because everybody else is cheating. And they're... Those are the specific commands of God that God says we're supposed to do. And too often, we're like this guy. Too often, we settle for doing something good and not what's best. We look at them and say, well, I, I, you know, he gave out the word of God. I guess that was some good. Yes, it was good, but it wasn't the best. What, is, what are we doing in our lives when it comes to being a real servant of Christ? Are we doing what's good and only good when we could be doing the best? To be the best servant possible is very simple. You do two things. You come in faith to Jesus Christ. You let him forgive you of your sins. And then number two, you come and do obey, you obey whatever he tells us to do, even when it's hard, when it's difficult. And watch how the Lord can use it as a witness, as a testimony, and do things in the long run far better than what we can do. I find this, this story to be one of the most challenging stories in the gospel, to constantly evaluate, am I doing good? when I could be doing the best.